Welcome to Stop and Talk, a podcast about connection and building a more vibrant region together through creativity, health, and community. This is your host, Grant Oliphant, the CEO of the Conrad Prebus Foundation. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to welcome David Miyashiro, Superintendent of Cajon Valley Union School District. The district consists of more than 17,000 students in kindergarten through eighth grade. Under David's leadership, the White House recognized Cajon Valley School District as one of the, quote, top 35 district leaders in personalized learning. Under his leadership, too, the district has become a Title I achievement school, meaning that it educates a significant proportion of low-income students and works with low-income families and still achieves its goals for education. He is a recognized national leader in efforts to rethink and reinvent how learning works in our country. He has created a school district that has been voted a best place to work and a place where the entire uh, group of educators, faculty, uh, staff, and board all seem to be working in the same direction to help elevate kids and families in their district. He works very hard to build the buy-in of students, teachers, parents, board, and the community by engaging them in the process of reinventing education and integrating their feedback to drive success in terms of what that actually means. One of the things that we'll be talking about in this program is the work that his district has done to elevate the, the future and meaning of work in the context of education so that young students can begin to think at an early age about what it is that they want to do and accomplish in life and chart a path to their own success. So we have lots to cover. It is a great delight to welcome David to the program. David, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to stop and talk with me. It's so good to see you, Grant. Yeah, Thank you for having really me. really good to see you. Yeah. You are uh, uh, a friend who I came to know even before I came to San Diego. I had heard about the great work that you'd been doing. Uh, and I've said a lot of nice things about you in th in the introduction, but before, rather than repeat all of that, let me ask you how you introduce yourself and describe the work you do. For the most part of my career, I describe myself as an educator, but after 2020, I view my work as public service, and am very proud to be able to to serve our community in ways that meet their wants and needs. And I don't think I approach my work that way, but. I view us as public servants and very grateful to be able to serve here. Wow. That reframing speaks volumes. I'm going to try and come back to that because I think that's a really important... Something happened for you, obviously, during the pandemic mm -hmm. and the racial awakening and everything that happened during that time. But let's give people context in terms of where you're working. Tell us about your school district and what makes it special. The Cajon Valley Union School District is in the eastern part of San Diego County. We have 28 schools, about 17,000 students, and the most beautifully diverse population, I think, not just in San Diego, but perhaps the country. We have over 40 languages spoken in a 65-mile-square radius, the largest Middle Eastern refugee population in the country, and diversity in socioeconomic backgrounds as well. We have members of the Department of Defense. We have developers and contractors and construction people. 
but we also have people that are struggling to be above the poverty line as well. So it's a very diverse community that I think makes us strong. And in terms of the number, the number of kids you're serving, is that growing? It's about the same. We've been stable. A lot of districts have experienced declining enrollment, but I think because of the Section 8 housing that we have and the large number of refugee resources, mm-hmm. we've been stable in terms of kids coming in. I want to I want to come back to what you opened with just a moment ago about thinking about yourself, a reframing of how you thought about yourself. And you started through most of your career thinking of yourself as an educator. You are the head of a large school district, which, by the way, I think is one of the hardest jobs in America. And I, I just want to say this up front, that um, every superintendent I have known works harder than almost anyone else that I've met and under circumstances that are frequently very difficult and trying. Uh, and for people in those ranks who really take the work seriously, it is emotionally taxing, also emotionally rewarding work, which is why they stick with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I say that up front because I think it's important as we dive into a conversation about this work that we acknowledge the nature of the work and how it feels to be doing it. You actually said you went through a shift in in 2020. So what happened? Actually, if I can start with a shift back in like the early 2000s, mm-hmm. when I was a school principal uh, growing up as an early educator, legislation called No Child Left Behind forced us all to focus on raising test scores and making standardized testing the end-all, be-all of what kids would aspire to in terms of achievement. And being really good at it, we were the New England Patriots of standardized testing when I was a principal. We would take a school and turn it around and become what was called a Title I achieving school. And what we realized is that these kids, as they started to improve their test scores, were still not improving their life outcomes. They were still going into generational gangs, getting pregnant in high school. And our teachers are watching this happen. Some of our, our most high-achieving students based on test scores were still not succeeding after high school. Mm. And it causes us to think, what are we doing to these kids in the name of accountability? And that's when Ken Robinson, a famous TED Talker who passed a few years ago, gave an iconic TED Talk, the most watched TED Talk of all time, about how schools are killing creativity and showing that that one set of standards— is a way to go for education, and it's, it's killing society. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to be wrong. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. Uh, they have become frightened of being wrong. And we run our companies this, by the way. We stigmatize mistakes. And we're now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we are educating people out of their creative capacities. And so with all these factors weighing in, we started to think about, as a school community, why are we doing these things and should we continue them? Mm. And that's when we began to think about technology and innovation and a lot of the advances in healthcare and other industries that was enabling personalization and personalized healthcare. Well, if there's personalized healthcare, why not personalized education? And so I became a technology advocate, a change agent, and that work brought me to Cajon Valley as someone that they brought in to innovate, to come into the digital world, 
and to start thinking about career development and the world of work differently mm-hmm. in terms of helping kids escape poverty, but also kids that are affluent to stay in, in healthy relationships and find good outcomes for themselves. That changed in 2020 because all of these things that we were doing that I was doing was based on my own personal experience and how I perceived the world. When we started having weekly Zoom calls with our parents uh, in March and April of 2020, the first few weeks of the pandemic, they were very grateful because their kids had computers, they were able to communicate and receive their curriculum, and we were still providing meals through our meal service. But after week three, our governor announced that we were going to be in stay-at-home for a couple months, and then those conversations became uh, basically therapy sessions of crying and parents saying, we are not doing okay. The kids are not fine, and we need to go to work. And, and in my part of the community, a lot of our parents both work. We have a lot of public service agents in healthcare and in law enforcement and in fire. Mm. And so early on, we said, well, if we were to open our schools, what would that look like? And basically the parents said, as long as you would take care of them, you don't have to do anything else. We just need to go to work, and we need to know that they're going to be safe. So in April of 2020, we opened one classroom of 18 students. The parents both had to be what was called essential workers at the time. When our parents started to realize what we were doing, the demand grew from, from 18 to 36 to 200 to 2,000 families saying, we need wow. access to our schools. Mm. So in April, May, and June of 2020, we opened all 28 schools, and accepted all students that parents felt safe to send them. And a lot of parents didn't feel safe sending their kids to school at the very beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But based on serving the parents and families who entrusted us with their kids, responding to their wants and needs and opening our schools, we weren't trying to do anything other than serve. It really changed our mindset. These classrooms, these schools, they're not ours. It's not that teacher's classroom. These classrooms are paid for by the community, by taxpayers, mm-hmm. and it's our privilege to be in charge of these resources that we need to make available to the families in this way during this time. And then coming out of the pandemic, we, we keep that mindset. These schools we're entrusted with to serve our community the best we can. And so we, we take time to ask, you know, how do you want to be served? What do you need? And we care about the answer. That story is incredibly powerful uh, for multiple reasons. I mean, th- at the time you were making that set of decisions, the the schools were in many respects the front line of a war over mm-hmm. how best to respond to the pandemic, about the cultural tensions happening, um, surfacing around our, our nation's response. Was it was it difficult for you to step into the middle of that, or did you not view yourself as stepping into the middle of that? Because we were on weekly Zoom meetings with our PTA presidents and their uh, elected bodies at the local schools, we were just listening to what our parents were saying, and we, we invited our union leaders, our school board members, to be part of the calls to hear directly from the community. And so when we started to respond in ways that met their needs, we got criticism. We got criticism from the California Teachers Association because they didn't want schools to be open. They wanted schools to be shut. Even the governor's office were not pleased with what we were doing because it didn't fit their narrative of it's not safe to be outside. And so those are the things that were hard, 
But look, luckily, we had Pauline Lucatero, who's director of nursing for Family Health Centers of San Diego. She's a parent in our district. She and some members of the county health department came and walked our campuses and realized that we were opening for the healthcare workers. We were opening for the police officers. And most of the kids that we were serving are kids that were being left at home alone with no supervision. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because of a conservative agenda. It wasn't because of a liberal agenda. It was meeting the needs of the families that we were serving. And so we just moved forward. And our union leaders, um, unions get a lot of slack these days. Our union leaders said, we want to show up for our families. They, they didn't need convincing. They listened directly to the conversations and, and showed up to work. And it was heroic. I, I, I think about our employees and what they did during that time, and I'm, I'm so proud of the work they did. Yeah, And in an era in which, and we'll come back to this later, but in an era in which everything gets politicized, where every step forward or backward on any issue is sort of viewed as a political move, how were you able to bridge the political divide around that issue? We asked good questions and we listened. We listened more than we spoke and especially when the things that we were hearing were hard to hear, we leaned in more. And I think that when I you know, reflect on not just that, but even recent things that have been controversial, a lot of times when I'm engaging with someone that's upset or has, has something to, to talk about, they're less interested in being right than they are being heard mm. and acknowledged. And I think just by hearing and acknowledging people, really leaning in to understand what people are saying is more than half the battle. And if we can get to that point with everybody, then I think we can have authentic conversations like this and actually move the needle forward. Great. I want to touch on that again, but we'll circle back to it in a, in a moment. I have been captivated by how you present your mission as an organization uh, since the moment that I heard it. And you say that the district's vision is happy kids engaged in healthy relationships on a path to gainful employment. And we're going to break that down okay. a little bit. Uh, but as superintendent who embrace this is an unusual vision for a district, and especially in an era when everybody's so concerned about test scores. Uh, why these three elements? Well, first, the, the, uh, the Happy Kids, Healthy Relationships on a Path to Gainful Employment came from conversations with everyone in the community. When you ask a parent, you know, what are your hopes for your, your child's experience when you drop them off? They want them to be happy. They want them to have friends. They want the teachers and, and the other students to see them and accept them for who they are, make them feel good about themselves, happy kids, healthy relationships. And every parent wants their child to have their version of the American dream. And that's different for, for every family. So we have to ask each family specifically, what are the hopes and dreams for your kids? Mm. And then understanding the unique strengths, interests, and values that every young person brings with them before they even enter our buildings. And it's our job to unlock that and to help them find that place. And that's why when our city manager told me to stop stigmatizing labor and acknowledge the Department of Defense and the Navy and Marines that we have here in San Diego, show kids that that's a positive pathway to gainful employment, both civilian and non-civilian jobs. Show them that, that using a hammer or tools is not a bad thing, that there are beautiful things they can build and work on and businesses that they can start. And he said, these are not part of the school curriculum. And with the city manager, our mayor, our chamber, and other people, 
we started to just reimagine what school could be, and it was that. We want our, our citizens to be happy, to be engaged in healthy relationships, and to be gainfully employed. And that backward maps to our vision of happy kids and healthy relationships on a path to gainful employment. I love it. Before we move on to the work piece, the third element of that, I just want to acknowledge the idea that a school district would embrace that it is cre- it is helping kids find their happiness uh, and also building strong relationships is a pretty remarkable step in education. And I, I, I think it deserves to be acknowledged. Um, that said, I think you're part of a national movement of people who I have known as a network of, of folks called Remake Learning, mm-hmm. who, and my portal into that was a, a foundation head named Greg Bear back in <laughs> Pittsburgh. And and the notion of the Remake Learning Network, of which you are a part, I think you're still a part of that today, is that we really have to rethink how education happens in our country. And one of the ways in which you stand out nationally for how you're doing that is personalized education, which you referenced earlier, but also this thing about work. Mm. Uh, and I, I, want, I want you to tell us uh, how you developed a, an approach to talking about work and why you felt it mattered. I mean, I hear that you got um, some pushback from people in your community about needing to talk about it, but we don't talk to kids about work in education. And why not? How did you begin to see it differently? What was the opportunity that you saw that others miss? A lot of it, it comes down to data, but I first want to give credit where credit is due. In 2015, I did visit Pittsburgh for the first time with Remake Learning and was hosted by Greg and several superintendents and educators. But we also saw Carnegie Mellon, Mr. Rogers Studios, and the Pittsburgh Pirates and Penguins, all the organizations and foundations and philanthropy coming together to make Pittsburgh the best place to live, work, play, and raise a family. And we actually stole that. That's our mission statement now. But that I've noticed that you stole that. <laughs> we, yes. borrowed, we, we, we borrowed, stole, you know. Uh, but all, all good ideas <laughs> are borrowed, so right. And it was at the same time that I met Ed Hidalgo, who became our chief innovation engagement officer. He was working at Qualcomm at the time. He created an experience called the World of Work, which was a one-day experience, much like Junior Achievement BizTown, where kids get to try on and be a career professional for a day. And we wanted to scale that up. The other thing that I learned was at the San Diego Workforce Partnership, they had uncovered data called Opportunity Youth, mm-hmm. and they showed us data that kids aged 16 to 24 not working and not in school was a phenomenon happening all across the county and actually all across the country. When you think about kids 16 to 24, they're not working and not in school. They're completely out of the system. That's a problem. And when we started to talk with the Workforce Partnership on how to solve it, they're showing us how they re-engage people to help them re-enter the workforce. But they told us, if you stop the bleeding before kids get into high school, you can put us out of business, and that would be a good thing because we don't want displaced people. And the other data was the 1.7, now 1.8 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. The kids that are actually successful that finish high school, get accepted to college, they're out holding a bag of $1.8 trillion that they can't pay off because they didn't find gainful employment based on the major or, mm-hmm. or the school that they chose. And so those two data points pointed to a broken system. 
So how can we be more thoughtful and purposeful about making sure that kids, before they leave high school, understand who they are, where they can use their skills in the world, and the school district actually helps them into their path to gainful employment to ensure that they can provide for a family and achieve their version of the American dream. Now, for most school districts, if they think about this at all, they might think about continuing education programs. They might think about vocational education. They might have counselors who tell students, here's what you can go into. But you're not waiting till the end. What are you doing differently through World of Work? A lot of the CTE programs and pathways that school districts have implemented serve some kids. Our goal was to serve every kid. And with the CTE pathways and and programs, they identify five to six, maybe at most in a school district, career trajectories. But when you look at the world of work, it's infinite. And so in our district, we have the mantra of every child is a pathway. So as freshmen, our students have to give a cold call. They have to use their their TED-like talk to pitch themselves to someone in the community that will be their first mentor. And so our kids intern starting as freshmen, and then their internships and mentorships grow as they get into their their junior and senior year. They actually do work-study programs. But we don't pigeonhole them into a pathway or a program. It's based on their interest. We connect them to someone in the community that they can work for and be a part of. That's based on a model called Big Picture Learning, Mm. which is a very successful charter school network. We've also learned from Da Vinci schools. There are a lot of innovative private and charter schools doing really good work that we've borrowed from. And I think that if we can systematize that and bring those into the public school system, we can change things for a lot of kids really fast. Charter schools were meant to do that. When they were conceived, they were supposed to be innovation spaces where districts can try new things and then bring them back into the system to implement system-wide. And it, it didn't, fr- didn't come to fruition that way. They became competitors. But I think that the way we're looking at it is a way to, to systematize some of the best practices. What is it about this um, introduction of the conversation about work that we've been getting wrong in American education? When you think about what you're doing with World of Work, which is engaging kids immediately in a conversation about the ways in which their skill sets can translate into types of work that they might be interested in, why isn't that happening everywhere, and what are we getting wrong? I, I think that we have developed a college-for-all mentality, and that if we don't send kids off to university, that we failed in some way. What we've learned through our experience and working with the community is is that all work has value. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a two-year, four-year, or straight out of high school, there's lots of opportunity if we just get out of our own way. And when we start asking families, what do you think your kids would enjoy doing to make money? It's a different conversation. And our job is to make sure that every child finds a pathway for themselves. Again, whether it's two-year, four-year, straight out of high school, but finding the adults in the network that can build build their social capital to actually have have gainful employment. What have you learned from the kids in working on this? Are there lessons that leap out at you from the engagement with them around talking about work? Yeah, we, we started our first high school just a couple years ago, and so this year we'll have our first senior class. 
and watching our students who have strong self-awareness because they've had eight years of our world of work curriculum, eight years of learning how to give TED Talks, they're articulate, they're smart, they know themselves. When they go out, and a lot of our, our, our young people worked with the city of El Cajon in public works. Mm. Some of them worked in, in, in the construction area. Some of them worked with the police department servicing their vehicles. To see that, that there's work that they enjoy doing, that they can make money doing, and actually have career advancement because they're having conversations with these career professionals is incredible. It, and there's nothing better than hope. And when you see hope in a young child, that, that glimmer that they know they're going to get there, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's what, what you know, gets us up in the morning. Have you ever had an individual that stand, whose story stands out in ter- for you in terms of, of symbolizing this? One of my favorite stories is, is Sammy. And Sammy was, uh, he wanted to be a professional football player in fourth grade. And then we introduced him to the world of work. He did the career explorations and then started thinking about his strengths and interests. He said, Dr. Michio, I am enterprising, social, and artistic. And in the Raya sect, that translates to, I, you know, I'm great, great at creative self-expression. I can persuade others to do things. And I'm very strategic in helping others. And I said, Sammy, that's my Raya sect too. And he said, you know, I want to be a superintendent. Wow. So he shadowed me. And then by the time he left eighth grade, he had a plan. He said, I don't want to be a teacher, but I know I have to be in order to have an uh, administrative credential to be a principal. And I should be a principal if I'm going to be a superintendent. He can talk to you about this. And so I think that um, he'll be coming for my job in about 10 years. <laughs> I, love, I love that. And we have to meet this child. Yes. <laughs> so um, let's, let's break down the terminology because a lot of folks uh, who are listening won't, won't know about your methodology. So in the world of work methodology, you actually do help uh, students do an analysis of what their interests and strengths might be. Mm-hmm. And you call this the RIASEC? The RIASEC is the interest framework uh, built by John Holland that was created way back in the end of, end of Vietnam War to help mm-hmm. military folks decide what type of work they would explore um, after Coming service. out of the military. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's, the, it's how the Department of Labor and, or, and universities categorize their majors. And artistic, creative self-expression is one. Social, helping others. Investigative, using math and science to solve problems. Realistic, hands-on doing, outdoor exploring. Conventional, organizing facts, data, and figures. And enterprising, the CEO of a foundation or the superintendent of a school district out trying to save the world. All right. <laughs> Let's definitely include ourselves in that category. But um, David, I'm 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 curious as I think about boy, it's fascinating that this is a tool that the military designed for uh, personnel leaving the military to figure out how to re-engage with society, um, with civilian life and and work in civilian life. What it just it seems staggering to me that our educational system has to turn to the military to <laughs> figure out how to prepare students for what the educational system was originally designed for, which is to give them a pathway to a meaningful role in society and life. Mm-hmm. Where did we go wrong? I don't know, but our founding father, John Adams, would say there are two educations. One should teach kids how to live, and the other to teach kids how to make a living. And I think our founding fathers had it right when they designed school that way. You know, how to live and how to make a living. That's 
Well, that's actually brilliant. I it, mean, we can, we, could, we, could, we could stop the podcast yeah. right there and go back <laughs> to the founding father. But um, I have a few more questions, okay. so we'll we'll continue. And I, but I, and I, I certainly don't mean to be negative because I think what you're here talking about is a model for how to move forward, and and it's exciting. I, what you're doing in your district is exciting. The story, like you just shared about Sammy, and and you've got hundreds of stories mm-hmm. like that. Um, is exciting. What I'm thinking about is a culture in which, um, you know, we have lots of students struggling with what the purpose of education beyond high school will be, what the cost of it will be, um, how to find purchase in, in this very complicated society of ours. And when you hear policymakers talk about it, they usually talk about it in terms of, boy, we need to start thinking about work because we need a workforce that can do the jobs, and hundred uh, percent correct. We need a workforce, and if you look at our region, we need a you know we have gaps in terms of workforce. We need to fill those gaps, or our economy won't grow. Mm-hmm. You also hear people saying, "Well, you know, this is an economic utility for the individual. They need to make a living, so it's a pra- practical tool for them to figure out how to make a living." John Adams' uh, second piece. I've always thought there's a third piece, Mm. which is um, around how we, and maybe it goes to John Adams' first point, which is how to live, Um, and it's and it's how do we connect with purpose, and it and it feels to me as though through the world of work and the practical tools you're providing kids, students, you're also connecting them with a sense of purpose in their lives. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. I think um, a few of the researchers and authors that I borrowed from, one is Charles Duhigg. He describes happiness and well-being as a habit. The Power mm-hmm. of Habit was one of his books. Uh, the other is Sean Aker. He's a positive psychologist, and he talks about not happiness as being something that's short-lived, but it's the joy we feel moving towards our potential. And that potential has to be based on a compass that we develop based on life experience one of the things working with kids in poverty is they don't get exposed or have enough life experience to know what their strengths, interests, and values might even be. That's why the world of work and exposing them to careers all over the globe and giving them opportunities to unlock their strengths, interests, and values through career exploration starting in kindergarten is important because if they don't see their future, they can't achieve it. And for kids that don't have an opportunity to travel and have conversations with with adults who really have have lived, um, they won't have that opportunity. So we t- don't take that for granted in school. We make that part of their K-12 curriculum. All of this, it, um, it is apparent to me, ties to the concept of inclusion because you, you're communicating a message to young people that they all have a purpose and a role and an opportunity, and you're asking them to think deeply about what that is uniquely for them. Uh, you're not trying to fit them as a widget into a system. Mm-hmm. So you're valuing what makes each individual an individual. Uh, again, in our culture, to come back to what we touched on earlier, that can be difficult at times mm-hmm. for people uh, in these hair-trigger times to allow for. How, how do you go about communicating a message of belonging through your work uh, and and how do you deal with the pushback that you inevitably get around it? And do you get pushback around it? 
Our hashtag is, is CVUBelong. It's something that our team has developed over time, and it's something that you'll see on all of our branding. Mm. And you belong means that we get to know every person's story deeply and well, not just our students, but their parents and our employees too. If we are able to create a system where every person's story is told, is heard, received, and accepted, then I believe that we can create a culture of belonging. And that's been extremely challenging because ideologies and politics have, have driven some of the conversation. But what we learned early on when we started to have our students give TED Talks based on the TED curriculum that the TED Ed team built, rather than have them start to try to give a TED Talk because kids at age seven don't have enough life experience to give mm -hmm. an 18-minute TED Talk, let's just have, teach them how to tell their story in a TED-like way. And so children talk about when they decided to wear their hijab or about their quinceanera, or about when they, they had their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And all kids, through some point, have a rite of passage mm. when they become a young adult. All kids have culture and religion and food that they eat that's different. And when those become conversations in the classroom, they're authentic, they're the student's story, and we embrace it. And we extend that to our families so that families can talk about their religious beliefs and whether they're on the right or on the left, whether you know gender identity or equity is part of it or not. We allow all stories to be told and every person in the community to be heard. And it's been tough because some people don't want to hear certain stories or certain ideas, but when they're the kids, are we going to censor our children? Are we going to allow kid, or, or force the kid to edit something out of their TED Talk when they're talking about themselves? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Where we haven't received any pushback is around our TED program where kids can say whatever they want to say and we accept it and embrace it. And I think that if we can get the adults to behave that way, <laughs> we'd be in a lot better place too. It's a beautiful notion and I, and I love it. I think the, it's a great model for how we ought to expect adults to behave. They don't always, <laughs> so we don't always, I should say. Yeah. Um, and as you, as you think about how you navigate that, uh, you know, you have to work in public meetings. You have to deal with your public servant, as you mm -hmm. said. Uh, you've t spoken about a culture of deep listening. What does that look like in a community context? It it means one at a time, and so a lot of time at board meetings or in my work, people will have very short amount of time to share what they have to say, mm. or we'll have to shoot it off in an email. Every person that reaches out to me or that I hear a concern or comment from, I take the time to meet with one-on-one, -on -one, if they'll give me an in-person meeting, but at the very least, a phone call, not through text, not by email, to have a conversation and ask so I can go deeper. Well, tell me more about that. You know, like, is there experience that, that caused you to feel that way? Can you tell me about that? And in an ideal world, what would I do next to help serve you? And I don't always have the answer. I can't always give them what they're asking for, but mm -hmm. by having the conversation, I could at least build a relationship with this person. And one, of, one at a time over the last 10 years has built a large community of people to, that I feel like I know very well. And I'm modeling that for our employees. We take the time. One of our eight promises is to emphasize relationships and to build community. And we view every interaction with anybody as an opportunity to build a relationship. 
We learned that from Horst Schultz from the Ritz-Carlton. He talks about how they engage customers and make them feel guests at the Ritz-Carlton. Our goal is to make every parent and student feel like they're a guest at the Ritz-Carlton when they walk on our campus. Hmm. And that's hard, and that's intentional. It's a pretty high bar. It's a high bar. <laughs> but it's a, good, it's a good goal, I think, to make people feel welcome and that they belong. What do you hear from uh, te- your, your teachers about this and about doing that work? Well, we start with them first. So mm. the teachers and our employees, they're the ones that are our first customers. We learned that from the best CEOs in business. And so, for example, last year we asked our teachers, what are things that you spend your own money on that you wish the district would pay for? Mm. And the top, What a great question. It, it was, and, and we were surprised by some of the answers. One was film developing. One was fidget spinners, one was candy, and the other was healthy snacks. So easy to put healthy snacks in the staff room. They like to have candies for kids. Those are things that teachers would usually pay for for themselves. And do we want to support candy for kids? You know what? They're going to spend it anyways. Let's get give it to them. <laughs> fidget spinners are rewards for the treasure chest, you know, so the kids can earn something. And th- those are things that teachers typically buy. Film developing was interesting, but in primary school, you know, bulletin boards where kids' work is displayed. They like to have their kids' picture on the wall, and they usually have to spend money to do that. So we took care of those things. And there's this thing called Teachers Pay Teachers, which is a service that our teachers spend into so they can have instructional resources. We paid for that too. So by asking our employees, what do you need? How can we better serve you? And then when they respond, actually taking action on it, then I think that we can treat them like the first customers so that we can extend that to our families and our students. Do you define success differently now than you did when you started? I do, and it it goes back to our vision. Are the employees, are the kids, are the parents happy? Are the employees, are the parents, are the kids in healthy relationships? And are the families and our employees enjoying their employment? Have we created conditions where they want to come to work and they feel connected to it? And you notice I didn't mention anything about test scores, reading or math. Those things are incredibly important for gainful employment, But if we start with happiness, relationships, and purpose, Mm -hmm. then those things will take care of themselves, and we've we've proven that to be correct. Happiness, relationship, relationships, and purpose. I I think that's such a a beautiful triumvirate by which to measure how kids are doing in school. Uh, And you're right; the other the other elements of that are important, but maybe not as primary. Similarly for society, we could probably learn something about that. I'm, I'm curious before we wrap up, in a culture that sometimes struggles to feel positive about the direction of anything, uh, and we are, let's be honest, you know, I, I, think, I, I think we have plenty of segments of society where there's, there's concern about how are our public institutions doing, how are our schools doing, climate change, the direction of the planet, you name it. And and yet you're hopeful. You walked in here with a smile on your face. Uh, hopefully people can tell from listening to your voice the way you <laughs> radiate a kind of joy about the work. What is it that makes you hopeful about all of this? Well, I have to tell you, having you as a friend and having other friends like you have made it possible to overcome the last few months. A few months ago, we had a conversation and I wasn't in the same place. Mm. And I was letting it get to me, and it was getting hard. Over the last few weeks, uh, we've been talking about joy, and joy being a skill and a choice. And I stopped choosing that. 
I let things get to me and I forgot that, you know, I can choose to be a Tigger or be an Eeyore. <laughs> and I was an Eeyore for the last few weeks. Such I, an important metaphor it is. And our conversation that we had really picked me up and then reaching out to other other superintendents that are going through the same stuff saying, you know what? The noise is the noise, mm. but the work is the work, and, and let's choose joy and happiness. Let's not let let those things that are out there in society get us down, because if that happens, then then hope is lost. We gotta we gotta stay positive. There's a great uh, thing I just read recently from uh, Thich Nhat Han, who uh, said that sometimes your joy is the source of your smile, and sometimes your smile is the source of your joy. Uh-huh. And what you just perfectly stated is a moment came along where you had to smile through the challenges and make a path forward and find your joy again. And I, I actually think that's a beautiful answer to the question I posed about what gives you hope and how we all can continue to share that in that even when we're feeling skeptical. I think what's also important is that you've grounded that in real programs that mm. you're working on. So as we as we wrap this up, uh, and before I say thank you, any anything that you wish I had asked you? I think that that public education could be that mechanism that unifies our country during this divided time, because every person wants the best for its young people. And if we can get down to happiness, relationships, and fulfillment through gainful employment, those things are not partisan, not controversial, don't have any buzzwords. It's very simple. And I think simple language, simple conversation, and letting go of ideologies that polarize us is the path forward. And I think public education could be that place where we can actually start healing and moving forward. Beautifully stated. David, thank you so much for stopping and talking with me. Thank you, Grant. There were so many takeaways from this conversation. At least four leap out at me. I think, first of all, listening to David tell the story of what happened in his personal journey from educator to public servant, the evolution that he felt he made during the course of the pandemic. What's clear in listening to David is that he's always viewed himself as a public servant, but he has gone through an evolution, as so many have, in seeing how responsive his district needs to be to the special needs of the parents and students and educators who are in that particular community. And I think really understanding with him what he learned during the pandemic about how important that is to successful education was one component of this, along with the bravery that that requires. So in his case, in his district's case, they had to be able to withstand criticism from state officials, local officials, union officials, uh, many of whom became strong and stalwart allies and to whom on whom uh, or to whom David turns quite clearly um, as as supporters and fellow travelers. Uh, nonetheless, it required for him as a leader a willingness to lead in a direction that wasn't always popular. And I think that's something that 
is a great model for all of us as we think about how we respond similarly to an evolution in our roles in an era where things are often uncertain and unclear. So that is one very clear lesson from listening to David. I think a second more particular to education is just the way in which his very diverse district thinks about making room for every kid and has this actually stated notion that every kid is a pathway, really, therefore, requiring them to do a deep dive on every kid's unique story and every kid's unique potential. And what has emerged from that for the the Cajon Valley School District is a beautiful concept core to the identity of the work they're doing of belonging in an educational context, that every child's story needs to be told, is worthy of being told, and that in every child exists potential to contribute in some meaningful way. And that actually leads to the third takeaway for me, which has to do with how difficult that can sometimes be and the importance of bridging divides in our divided culture, which is something we talk about, it seems, at almost every one of these programs. But in David's case, in the Cajon Valley School District's case, they do encounter voices that don't want some stories to be told, that don't want some perspectives to be represented. And what he has done is figure out how to have the kids tell their own stories. And what we learn from from his experience in that respect through, he mentioned TED Talks that the kids do, for example, is that letting children speak for themselves, everybody in the end feels like they wouldn't want to censor the kids. And listening to the kids that they can make room in their hearts for the differences that they learn about through that. And I so often wonder, as I think many of us do, why we can't learn this simple lesson from our kids about understanding and embracing differences that kids seem so much more capable of articulating, embracing, and understanding. But in, in the case of Cajon Valley, where that has led David and the district, is a willingness to do what he calls deep listening and authentic conversation, another, I think, important model for all of us. And then finally, uh, the fourth takeaway for me from this conversation is his idea of reinventing education itself. And that is in at least two ways. One is to think about every child's personal learning needs. So this notion, again, of every child is a pathway leads educators to have to understand what a particular child needs to learn, to grow, to accomplish whatever it is that they are capable of and want to accomplish and contribute to the world. And there are mechanisms now, especially in this era of technology and innovation, for us to be able to deliver that type of education. Very importantly, as a subset of this, he talks about the importance of work. And in a society where we are genuinely struggling with how to help young people find their sense of purpose in the world, how to develop their sense of possibility and agency, a fancy word for just knowing that they can contribute and have an influence in the world that they're a part of, 
he and the Cajon Valley School District do that by daring to talk about education connected to work from the very beginning and saying that uh, whatever a child decides to do, it doesn't have to be college, it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. There's an infinitude of potential career paths that young people can follow. And the point of the work conversation in Cajon Valley is to validate any and all of them so long as they lead to a productive and contributing and life of dignity uh, for the young person in our society. Sir Ken Robinson, who uh, David quoted at one point in our conversation, similarly also said something else uh, in his uh, among the many things that that he said of importance connected to education during his life. He said that human communities depend upon a diversity of talent, not a singular conception of ability. And for too long in our thinking about what we're preparing young people to do, we've been very single-minded in terms of we're just trying to get them to college. But what David is daring to do is have a conversation about college, sure, but work and all the infinite varieties of, of work that exist and the pathways for getting there, which is a much richer conversation for young people and in many ways a more practical and grounded one. I think finally what I would just say is that it is an act of bravery in education to think about the mission of a school district to be focused around happiness relationships and fulfillment but that is a fabulous mission when we think about what it is that we want for our kids and really what we want for ourselves in our broader society which ultimately is the role of education is to help create the society we want thanks for listening Join us next time, and please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. Stop and Talk is a project of the Conrad Prebus Foundation. It is produced by Crystal Page and Adam Greenfield. It is engineered by Adam Greenfield and recorded in the Voice of San Diego Studios. Thanks again.